Hello and welcome to the Star Trek Academy, a podcast about the latest new episodes of Star Trek. Today we're looking at the premiere episodes of Star Trek Prodigy, entitled Lost and Found, and it's two episodes together, parts one and two. Your hosts are two of the Academy faculty members. I'm Michael Merrick. I'm the media professor. And I'm Rodney Cup. I'm the philosophy professor. Now, the best way to keep track of our new episodes and other announcements is to follow our Twitter feed. That's at Trek underscore Academy, and you'll find a pinned post there that has links to platforms for your podcast app, or you can subscribe directly at anchor.fm slash Star Trek Academy. That's all one word. So Rodney, we're going to be handling these podcasts about Prodigy a little bit differently from the, the previous ones we've done in part because the run of this season's Prodigy is going to overlap with the new season of Discovery. We're going to keep our episode summary way shorter than we have been doing, and in part because we're assuming there won't be quite as many call-outs to past Star Treks or, or Easter eggs as they're sometimes called. Right. Now, we're dealing with one universe here, a Star Trek universe, so there are going to be some, and I think we saw that in this episode, of course, But still, this section is going to be pretty short because we want to concentrate on the morals and the meanings and the messages of these stories, what the producers and the writers want us to get from each episode. We do like to think that we notice some things that aren't on everybody else's list. But for Prodigy, yeah, we want to spend most of our time on the meaning and not the smaller details. Although I must say, in the two-part episode today, we did find some things for that section. And we're going to mention some of those details, but before we get to those, we're going to begin with our episode description. Again, much shorter than we have done in the past. We will have a few spoilers here, but a lot of the details in this episode we're not going to mention. So we hope that if you've not seen it, uh, you're still going to have some surprises. Uh, With that having been said, here's Professor Michael Merrick. Okay, and the series begins in a huge underground mine on what is, for all practical purposes, a prison planet, apparently far away from Federation space. Dahl, who's a teenager from an unknown species, collects a group of other teenagers in an effort to escape. Notably, one of them is Gwyn, the daughter of the bad guy who controls the prison planet, whose name is the Diviner. She's loyal to her father, but in some ways, she's not particularly happy with him either. Dahl and a companion who looks like a big rock find the abandoned USS Protostar after a rock slide. And along with a Medusan who's called Fugitive Zero and later just Zero, they work together to make it operable. They come across a Tellarite engineer and also get his help to repair the ship. And what for better term, we're going to call a blob alien named Murph also gets in on on that. Under attack by prison guards, they managed to take off. Gwen is also aboard because she was trying to catch Zero for her father. After a daring escape, a training hologram based on Catherine Janeway appears to train them. And we learn that the Diviner has also ordered his robotic henchman, Dreadnought, to get the Diviner his ship. So for the description, we're going to leave it there. Again, a lot of detail that in the past we might have included were not for this series, but uh, that is uh, an outline that goes a little beyond what's been in the press clippings and things at least. 
Right. But before we get to the messages, morals, and meanings, we'd like to talk about a few elements that seemed important or significant to us or just plain interesting. Yeah. The, the fact that Prodigy is set apparently far away from Federation space is highlighted by the appearance of a Kazon. And remember, the Kazons were in the first couple of seasons of Voyager. They were essentially phased out of the story at that point. But they were something like 60,000 light years away from Earth. We also have a character who is a Medusan and a Tellarite. Both of them are from the original series. Of course, we've seen Tellarites several times since then. And I might add, this one doesn't look like any of the Tellarites we've seen before. We have a Cation like Bares and Ta'ana, a couple of Morn aliens, or at least one that shows up more than once. And it does seem strange to me that we have all of these species from so far apart at different places on this one planet. Uh, again, members of species that are essentially are members of the Federation and also one from the far end of where Voyager was flung by the caretaker. Now, I hope this is a plot point and just not a random selection of species that are thrown in for familiarity, but it's a plot point that will, if it is, it will take some time to develop. Yeah, I agree uh, with you. You know, with the appearance of the Kazon, I got the impression that maybe this is happening in the Delta Quadrant. And so what are all these Alpha Quadrant species doing here? All of these are kids. And uh, I mean, it, we have to figure out how they explain this away. The Kazon are really the outliers. They're the ones from farthest away. The rest could all be moderately close to Federation space. I mean, that that's possible. So we'll, we'll see. I have to add, Rodney, that I felt like I need a scorecard to keep track of all the characters. It is a fairly large ensemble cast. So I'm just going to run down some of them here. The name of the slave mining colony is Tars Lomora. And I couldn't find anything in that name that seems to be, to be symbolic. The apparent main character, teenager, is Dahl. He doesn't know what his species is, but he seems to know a lot about other species like the Medusans and the Tellarites. He spouted out information about them pretty quickly. So there's a little bit of a mystery there that we'll need to get them to solve. I found it mysterious also, especially since these folks can't communicate with each other. So I'm thinking, you know, maybe Dahl is an orphan and his former guardian's somehow knew a lot about the galaxy and its inhabitants, and maybe that's how he learned. But that's just speculation. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, how young do you have to be to know that you're of the human species? My impression, which may not be true, is that he doesn't even remember his parents. That, that you know, So who knows? If he remembers a previous life, then there wasn't any allusion to that. Going down the list of characters, the uber bad guy is the diviner. And his daughter is Gwyn, G-W-Y-N, Gwyn. They are together said to be the last of their species. And it wasn't clear, but that apparently has something to do with dad's secret plan for the starship. And it seems that he's looking for hope for himself, uh, his daughter and their species. I find it ironic that the diviner is depriving the inmates of the very thing he and their species needs. And we'll get to that later, of course. Yeah. The main enforcer robot, enforcer for the Diviner, was a robot named Dreadnock, who looks kind of like a scorpion when he really gets riled up and things like that. Dread obviously has some kind of symbolism because he's an, an affiliated bad guy with the big bad guy. 
The big red Rocky teen is Rock Talk, sometimes just called Rock. And again, there seems to be some symbolism there in, in the appearance. And when I said his, we're not really sure a gender here. I shouldn't have said his. The Medusan teen who has no gender is first called Fugitive Zero when the bad guys are trying to track the Medusan down and then just Zero. There's a sentient blob teen named Murph. And just real quick, did Murph activate the phasers with luck? or some kind of know-how. That was during the big escape sequence. I thought he knew what he was doing, but again, we'll find out. And then finally, the Tellarite is Jackson Pog. And again, they're all apparently teens, uh, although Jackson is probably the one where age is least clear among the characters. I wanna talk about the Diviner a little bit more. The Diviner is aware of the Federation, even though apparently it's quite a ways away. The whole massive prison planet mining operation has apparently been focused toward finding the protostar. And it's a huge operation. The caverns and things like that are just absolutely massive. So uh, one of the things I assume we'll be learning over time is, is why. Is the protostar so much better than other ships the diviner may have available is there some other secret about it there's got to be something um and this wouldn't be a uh, unusual sort of plot device i mean we saw it as recently as the third season of discovery when the people in the 32nd century um, the orions in particular were after that spore drive my question is i wonder if the diviner shouldn't already have the technology he needs to find it without having children dig for it that was a question that I had. Yeah. And he's also snarfing up those glowing crystals. They apparently are very valuable. So that's maybe how he's funding the whole operation. But other than having the storyline relate to teenagers who are the, like the primary uh, audience of the series, we don't know. That's, that's not clear. I do want to note also about the Diviner that the Diviner is voiced by actor John Noble. And who has been in a lot of things. He played Denethor in the Peter Jackson Lord of the Ring movies. And he, I've seen him in other places. He always seems to specialize in dark, dark characters, not necessarily always evil, but at least dark characters. And so the question comes up is what does Denethor need of a starship? <laughs> so right. this diviner seems pretty dark. Quick note about the mineral they're mining. We've been talking about, it's called Chimerium. Why Chimerium, I was wondering. A chimera is a creature in Greek mythology that breathes fire, and Chimerium has this beautiful, fiery appearance. And I don't know, maybe that's all there is to it, but I was wondering. A chimera is also considered to be, the dictionary says, an individual organ or part consisting of tissues of diverse genetic constitution. So I was thinking maybe it's symbolic of building a single entity out of diverse ah. parts, building a single crew out of people right. with diverse backgrounds. I don't, I don't know. And I we'll like see, that. we'll see if this chimerium comes up again or what the deal is with it. <laughs> I wanted to make a note about the sort of the plot of this episode. It reminded me of the book in the movie Holes. And the movie I think was released in 2003. It's a story about these inmates of a juvenile detention camp that are being used, long story short, to search for a lost treasure by digging these holes in the ground. 
And well, that's what the inmates of Tars Lamor are doing, aren't they? They're mining chimerium, uh, which as you pointed out is apparently quite valuable, but they're also being used, I think, to find the protostar. Uh, in fact, Dreadnought tells Gwyn, you know, when she asked, did you already know about this ship? He says, or it says, what did you think your father was mining for all these years? So fans of poles might feel like it's getting ripped off here by Prodigy, perhaps. I don't and we'll know. just have to see what the plot is, what the intended purpose the Diviner has for this, uh, this starship. All right. So I'm looking forward to finding out myself. But um, I guess we can shift gears into any underlying meanings we're finding in this episode. And um, this episode... Perhaps surprisingly, I'm not sure, was rather deep. Uh, wouldn't you say, Michael? Yeah, I think there are some very solid themes here and some themes that are very consistent with other incarnations of, of Star Trek too. One of the themes here is certainly freedom and self-determination. And we've talked about, about those things, particularly self-determination uh, several times recently in the, in the recent Star Trek series. Uh, Dal is a captive forced to work. He's determined to get free, although he doesn't apparently know anything about his background or even where he might go. He doesn't think that far ahead. And he's in what's essentially a slave labor camp. And they say that it's the young of many species that are purchased for the camp from folks like the Kazans. And we hinted at it earlier, but they are not provided with translators. So none of them, essentially none of them can communicate with each other other than by looking at each other and maybe gestures some things like that. When it comes to Gwen and her dad, I get kind of the vibe of helicopter parents who have a plan for their kids' lives and they push them and push them and push them. Mm. And they aren't really too interested in what the kids want, which is also a question of self-determination. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, that's, that's kind of what we see in the relationship between Gwen and her father. She wants to support him, but she's not all that happy about it. The name diviner, by the way, uh, has different meanings, but it means to predict the future or to reveal hidden things. Mm like maybe starships. <laughs> At one point, another name was given for the Diviner. To be honest, I didn't write it down. But so the Diviner is some kind of title being used. I don't remember that. It I'm was Solom or something look. like that. I can't remember in one, one scene oh, where, right. where the Diviner and Gwyn were talking. I didn't write it down. So don't quote me on that. I didn't either. I just wanted to say, you know, if they wanted to create a situation in which teenagers want to, want to escape they hit it out of the park here. There's a very disturbing, dark, grim situation these kids find themselves in. You know, they can't talk with each other. They're being forced to work. They're being used like tools, basically, by the diviner, which can be, I think, disposed of when they're no longer useful. And no regard is shown for their own personhood, their own goals, plans, values. Zero, the Medusan, is just reduced to a weapon. It's disturbing. The diviner though, at one point he, he tells Gwen you, that you have always cared for my unwanted, right? And so we know that she just doesn't share her father's morality and she is not going to stay, stay on team diviner. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. yeah. Another theme, and you mentioned it earlier, is the theme of hope. Uh, particularly the hope for a better life. And they actually use those words, hope for a better life at one point. Right. There's none on Tars Lamora. 
or there isn't supposed to be, right? Dal has hope, but the diviner says, every moment Fugitive Zero stays at large gives the unwanted hope and hope has no purpose here. And that's about as far away from Star Trek as you can get. But the show is about hope. Now that they've escaped the prison camp, they can all hope again, right? And did you notice when the protostar was finally in motion, lots of the other internees of the prison camp were applauding and cheering them? (laughs) So, yeah, I suspect for Gwen that we're going to see some kind of redemption story arc. Redemption is is a powerful theme that you see all across all kinds of literature, not just science fiction, because she's sort of been a bad guy herself, even though, as you say, her morality may not be the same as her dad's, but she's kind of been a bad guy. And so I, I am wondering if we're going to see a focus on redemption for her, at least Well, we've seen those story arcs a lot lately in Discovery, I'm thinking. And I don't think anybody on that planet has much of a choice with the diviner around. So that's a mitigating factor for her culpability, I guess. There's one point where she mentions talking to Dahl in detention. And it was clear that Dahl was in detention. It isn't really clear, but it was almost an implication that she was also like that she may have been punished for some things, although maybe she was just like the guard who came in to talk to the detainees because she cares for the unwanted. But that's that's apparently how they met. Uh, at least one or both of them were in detention and they got to know each other. I think I agree with you. They do seem to have this history. They seem to know each other better than they should. So I think maybe you're right. She was in detention at one point. A third theme that I saw, and you mentioned it earlier, also was that it is very symbolic that when the teens couldn't talk to each other, they had lots of misperceptions of each other. Once they finally got the translator on the ship going, they realized that each was a lot different from what they thought. The clear example is Rock, who, because of Rock's huge size, you would have imagined having a deep rumbly voice, I am Rock. But it's a high little, you know, very young voice, very young child's voice. And so that was, I mean, it was, it was a little plot twist, but it was also symbolic of not understanding people when you don't communicate with them. Making assumptions about them. Yeah. I love that moment. It seemed like a very Star Trek moment. I couldn't help but think about similar moments in past Star Trek, like the Horda, you know, looking like this terrible, horrible monster, but in the end turning out to be something very different. That's what we saw with Rock. Yeah, I think the the social message here is that it's easy to misunderstand and even discriminate against strangers. But once you get to know them, it becomes a lot different. And I think that is very much a point to be made for world society today. I I agree completely. And I, on on a related note, I think this this relates to society today is that these folks' inability to talk to each other prevents them from working together. And when people are individual and atomized like that, they're weak. It puts them in a position of weakness. When they discover the translator on board the protostar, they start talking with each other, they're working together, escape suddenly becomes possible, and they're more, much more powerful. Gwyn says at one point, she says, every language is a window into a new culture. And so they can learn about each other and empathize with each other. And now they can act toward this common goal, not just the diviners, but their own. Yeah, I've seen a lot of academic research that 
that essentially concludes that culture affects language, how we say things, but language also affects culture. And I think one of the examples of that in Western culture is the English language, at least, is very black and white about things. It is, you know, you won the election, even though it was just by one vote, or you lost the election. And it's very hard in English to, to use metaphors that convey, you know, it was almost a coincidence who won. And, and I think that the way the language works, that's an example of it, affects how our society thinks and how the culture works. Mm. And so language and culture, as Gwyn says, they're, they're, they're windows, but it goes both directions. Right. Right. It does feel like, you know, our language is, is pretty binary. <laughs> I think a, another related theme here has to do with idic or diversity or interspecies cooperation, something like that. They have this nice scene at the end where we see the crew there on the bridge looking at a uh, hologram Janeway and they're all of different species and they're all working together. Now they have hope. They look, they look like a Starfleet crew just without the uniforms. And I think I'm hoping, and it, it's appearing as if the show might be a celebration of this kind of diversity, a hopeful future in which people of all different kinds can work together in peace, which is a huge Star Trek ideal, isn't it? I think it is. I'm not sure they're quite there yet in the premiere episode. But I think some of the, the media statements and things are clear that they will be learning about themselves and learning about each other. And I think we can anticipate that they will be growing closer and working together more effectively over time. Right. Well, any uh, final thoughts, Michael? Yeah, a few. About this episode? A few, yeah. My first impression is that although this series appears on Nickelodeon in the United States, it isn't solely aimed at children and it is not aimed at younger children. You and I talked previously, Rodney, about whether this series would essentially be a kid's show or whether it would work for adults. And I think it certainly does work for, for different age groups. The opening scenes and the overall mind and prison setting, I mean, that was depressing. That would not be appropriate for considerably younger, younger children. But I think it was intentionally that way because it shows the the bad situation our teenagers were escaping from and i think the writers are these first two episodes that were in a single a single release show that the writers are writing this series on multiple levels that work for younger teenagers or yeah younger teenagers up through up through adults yeah i agree with you i i was worried about this show you know about how appropriate it would be for viewers like you and me but I want to keep watching. I, I did enjoy it and I want to see what happens. Another thought I had, I, I got to say how impressed I am with the animation. I mean, I, and I don't really know anything about animation. I just know what I like. And I liked this. I thought it was really nice to look at. Very beautiful to look at. Mm -hmm. The storyline of this series, the apparent storyline, uh, looks to me like it's going to revolve around the chase. It's a chase story. Uh, with Dreadnought trying to do everything he can, possibly in almost every episode, to track down the right. protostar. Reminds me of The Fugitive way back in the 1960s, and then reprised in Harrison Ford's movie. A police inspector is constantly on the trail of the fugitive who's wrongly convicted of murder. There have been a lot of series on TV since that that have centered around this kind of good guys on the run from bad guys, 
in Star Trek, it was the first season of Voyager in which they were constantly being chased by the Kazon. And it's both versions of Battlestar Galactica. And I've read a lot of non-Star Trek books that are essentially about the hero on the run from the bad guys. And so I'm not complaining about it, but um, that is apparently, at least for now, what the uh, the overall direction of the story arc is going to go. I also yeah. want to note about, talk about the protostar just a little bit more. The registry number is NX76884. NX means it's an experimental ship. Right. Um, on the one hand, it seems like it would have been buried there for a long time because it was so hard to find it and all that. But the Janeway hologram the fact that there is a Janeway hologram makes it seem like it's concurrent with Voyager technology and the holographic doctor. And the show is set about six years after Voyager gets home. So it makes sense that she could be the pattern for a a training type hologram, but that would imply it hasn't been there too long. And and that, so that's something that they have not revealed in their storytelling yet. The symbolism of the name protostar is that a protostar is what we call a star that's just forming. It hasn't fully collapsed all the matter. It hasn't ignited yet. hasn't exploded into life. And symbolically, that's kind of what our teenagers are doing. Mm. They've had parts come together. They're still developing who they are and maybe are starting this process that may include socially them exploding into life kind of symbolically. I also note, speaking of the mystery of the origin of the protostar, the hologram, Janeway hologram, didn't seem to know that anybody else had ever been on board. So don't know. We'll have to see how that plays out. There are so many questions here about the storyline going forward, but we'd expect to see that in a premiere episode. They don't answer all the questions right up front. They, They plant seeds and they plant questions uh, to encourage people to come back next time. Right. Yeah. The the teens are asking some of them, like how the ship got there, you know, where's the crew? Maybe it didn't have a crew, you know, maybe the, the ship was stolen somehow before it had even gotten a crew. But, you know, I, I want to know the answers to these questions. It's, it's a mystery uh, that I'm, I'm looking to get solved. I want to keep watching. And I assume that many or all of them will play out over the coming season. They may, hold some of them on the hope of a future season, but uh, we'll see how that plays out. So those are our comments about the premiere episodes of Star Trek Prodigy. Thank you for joining this week. We will be back next week to talk about what's technically episode three of Prodigy. The best way to keep track of our new episodes and other announcements is our Twitter feed at Trek underscore Academy. And a pinned post there has links to several different platforms for your podcast app. Or if you so desire, you can subscribe directly at anchor.fm slash Star Trek Academy. We thank you for joining us this week and we'll see you again for Prodigy next week.